Welcome to one of those Who's Rounds with somebody that has never spoken about Doctor Who publicly and has never been to a Doctor Who event or anything like that. So, you know, this is a real one-off. Um, this is a Skype interview with a gentleman I had the pleasure of talking to uh, the other day, but now we're doing it officially and recording it. So I'd like to ask him to tell me his name and why I've tracked him down to talk to him about Doctor Who, what his involvement was. Well, uh, first of all, my, my real name is John David Evans, but I was called Murray Evans when I was an actor because there was another John David Evans around. In fact, probably a million coming from Wales. Um, about... Uh, Doctor Who. Well, actually, I didn't have a great part in Doctor Who, but I was supposed to be, as far as I could make out, a uh, secret service man driving a large lorry and uh, spying on what I can only remember as, so I'm not sure what bunch of weirdos they were, to be honest. <laughs> Stay off the top of my head. But as I got out of the car and stalked, started stalking them, they killed me. I think they shot me with something. Yeah. So that's what happened to my great career in Doctor Who. <laughs> well, yes, sadly you were killed in, in episode one of The Invasion, but I don't know if you have a sort of place in history in Doctor Who in that you were the first unit... Doctor, do, the, the Doctor joined a group called Unit who, who helped him out that was headed by Nicholas Courtney as the Brigadier. Oh, um, Nick Courtney, yes. But, but, you, but because Unit was only founded in... or we only discovered Unit for the first time in that story, you are the first Unit <laughs> operative ever encountered by the Doctor. So you do have... You do have a, a place in Doctor Who's history. Oh, I have a place in history, do I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, thank you. Although, sadly, of, of, of all, the episodes of The Invasion, that story, two of them are missing, and one of them is, sadly, the one that you're in. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like my career. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. They destroyed a lot of stuff, better stuff than I did, I can tell you. And the BBC, and it's rather careless times. Yes. But did you know that you'd been animated? Because they have released it on DVD, but to, to make up the... They had the soundtrack, so your vocal performance still exists. But, uh, and they've, they've, they've done animation. They've, they've drawn you to, uh, to, to, to fill in the, the visual gaps. Oh, I, I think I was reasonably slim then. <laughs> <laughs> I don't suppose any large sum of money will be coming my way. They never does and never did. So well, you, we can forget that. Have you not had royalties for it? Now, I, if I did, it was so small I didn't notice it on the form. Ooh. There may have been some trivial sum of money, like about 32 pence or something like that. I mean, I can give even worse examples. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I got 11 pence from Coronation Street the other day. Um, <laughs> you, uh, you really are a go-ahead ladder, aren't you? Well, sad, <laughs> 11 pence, eh? Sad, sad, oh, you're going somewhere, son. <laughs> sad, sadly, my agent took her commission, so I, I only got 9 pence of it. <laughs> Oh, no, really? <laughs> That's right. And gangsters were looking for her as well. Oh, no. I turned up on a doorstep on the outskirts of London. I had three kids by then, and we were starving, as most actors' families do. And I said, um, <clears throat> I've come to see about the money. Oh, by the way, here's your milk bottles of milk. What man just left it. Come here, I'll get the police. Go away, I'll get the police. That's right. That's oh. absolutely true. Oh, my goodness. Yes. 
you know, the gangsters were involved as well. Oh. That's another story. Oh, my goodness. Well, um, I mean, you were, you were on the side of the angels in Doctor Who. Do you remember much? But do you remember working with Patrick Troughton or any of the, of the yeah, cast? Yeah, of I Doctor? do remember some of the people in it. I, uh, you mentioned Nicholas Courtney. He was a very nice fella, indeed. Um, Patrick Troughton, I'd have had much to do with him. But I was only there for a day or so anyway. You know, I, I, said, uh, uh, I have met real gentlemen who were big names, even though their careers invariably went wrong, as they all do. I've met real gentlemen from posh backgrounds, and I've met people from my own working-class background which are pretty nasty. So, you know, people are people when you get to know them, aren't they? Yes, indeed, indeed. Well, um, what about the, the director, Douglas Camfield? Because he was, he was very highly thought of uh, director at the BBC at the time. Well, well, I know he was, but I hadn't got a lot to do with him, quite frankly. But I've heard the name and he was good. And I think some of the stuff then was actually better than now. We've got all the technology and colour and big star treatment and over the top. But it's lost it lost the stuff in the very early, slightly stagey black and white sets when that very, very powerful character actor played Doctor Who, the first one. William Hartnell. Oh, Will Hartnell had a nice meanness about him. He played in gangster films like Brighton Rock, you know. Yes, and uh, you were in The Sporting Life with him as well, because he was in that, of course. Well, he might have been, but I didn't see him in the bits he was doing in uh. it. Ah. No, uh, yes, I, that's true, I was in that, but... Uh, I didn't see the bits he was in, so I um, I don't know if he was still alive then, but yes, because he must have been, yes, I forgot how long ago that was now. Yes, so um, those early ones, these early Doctor Who's, were not full of over-technical tricks, but they had a wonderful sort of oh, darkness about them at times, and they were quite catchy, quite, quite, quite uh, human. Uh, I, I don't think so much lately. I think they've become too smart, too smart, Alec. I quite liked some of the early stuff. It's like when you see the original thing about um, uh, the, the big ape. You know, there's been a modern version, which I think John Gilliman directed. Oh, yes. The, yeah. And then you had the original one back in the very early sound days. With, uh, I think it was a guy called Robert Armstrong, wasn't it? That's right, Robert Armstrong starred in King Kong, yeah. Yes, that original King Kong, despite the limitations, again, of early black and white, it captured you. Even though these monsters up there moving about were puppets, there was something about it which drew you into it, whereas the modern version was awful, awful. Like all the technology was able to do was show these monsters falling over the, themselves, rushing after these people. And it just didn't have that sort of strange, eerie quality that you could get with black and white film. No, oh, I love black and white. I, th I, th I agree with you. I think the black and white King Kong is, is unbeaten to this it day. It is, isn't it? It's excellent, isn't it? Yeah. So, yes. The, so... the, the leading man, apart from Armstrong Cabot, though was a rather odorous person, I understand, from what I've read about him. But uh, anyway, that was him. He was... Uh, the woman wasn't much good either. But um, uh, it was enjoyable, yes, definitely. And, and what about you, John? How did you, how did you get into, uh, uh, well, into yes. the acting trade? 
Well, I was interested in it. My mother worked in the cinema, and I was saw everything. I saw all the old films back made as far back as the 30s, and and there were two two different films a a week plus some. Um, a B picture, which was often better than the main picture, and shorts of all sorts of shorts of stuff behind the eight ball, for instance, and oh, I can think of others, and and quite fulfilling a, 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 a show, you know, for about one in Thrums. And uh, my father was very theatrical Welshman, um, and uh, I then de developed from that to acting in school plays, and. Um, like Tobias and the Angel, where I played Tobias. And uh, then I couldn't take on much more at that stage of my life because on leaving school I was bumped into the army and I signed on for an extra year out of desperation to earn enough money because I didn't think I was going to get it anywhere else in order to come out and study to be an actor. And uh, that's what I did. Uh, I was in the army, as I say, for three years abroad and this and that. I don't talk too much about it because other people have suffered terribly uh, by being in the forces and uh, have been neglected. I think many of them, but I had some experience and I had a few setbacks, but I'm not complaining about it. So do you want me to go on? Yeah, no, this is great stuff. And, and so, so you, um, you went to drama school just for a year, wasn't it? I went to the drama school for a year. I got in. I, 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 I went back to my old master to help me up at the, at the grammar school I'd gone to, which had been previously an ordinary um, school. And uh, there was a great feeling for art. So Robert Lang was a very good actor was at my school, the Fairfield School in, in Bristol. And... Um, Robert Lang was a very well-known character actor, a a of some quality. A, a lovely actor, yeah. Uh, Robert, yes, he had style. Well, Robert was a man with a great deal of style. Yes, and um, uh, he influenced me, for example. And um, I was lucky to get people like... Um, I had a, a Welsh um, master who was very much into theatre. And I had a very good art master who was a descendant of the famous... Um, uh, very famous British painter. Um, oh, well, you know, the one who did all those wonderful um, Impressionist-like paintings and influenced Impressionists. Turner. Turner, ah, yeah. yeah my, my, yes, he descended from that. Um, well, I went along and I went in the theatre. Now, I was 21. I hadn't had much of a teenage because of circumstances in those days and going in the army. Uh and I came into this drama school where there were a few older people, older than me, but many of these people were younger, substantially younger. Like, I think it's Sir Patrick Stewart now, isn't it? It is indeed. It is indeed. He came from a tough background, as you probably have heard. Yeah, he, yeah he's a Yorkshireman, isn't he? Yeah, his father was a, a drunken ex-soldier who was pretty aggressive. And Patrick has taught people this when he's been doing things for charity, I think, and whatnot, about his own experiences, and uh, he came up the hard way. I think he was probably not very old then. Uh, um, I can't say exactly how old he must have been. Not more than perhaps 17. Always looked mature. Very mature. And I acted in a play, which a Hungarian uh, refugee who was a, a director 
uh, put on saying that I must have the part that I was playing. Uh, I was more suited to that particular part than anybody else. And he was actually playing my older officer, old, uh, an Hungarian police officer. He was playing the older man to me. Uh. He was only 17, I think, at the time. Extraordinary. But he, he was absolutely extraordinary in being able to to to, to um, do that at such a very young age, because that's experience had done to her life, I suppose. And um, I did this, and the, the leading lady was Frances Hook, who became later uh, the wife of a great poet here. I, and, and her son is still a, a writer, I believe. She died, sadly. Lovely girl. Um, my own self... What happened was I met up with Peter O'Toole, who was doing three years at the Bristol Old Vic then, having come from RADA. And he was obviously going to be a great star, as I had to tell some petty little people who were sneering. And so there's too many of that sort of people hanging about in the business. Oh, well, you know, he's not so great when he has to go to London and meet the real stars. I said, well, listen, this is a star. Get it in your heads. This is a star. I had a few drinks with him. Because he used to like to drink. He did those yard ale drinks, by the way, and later in life he had to have his colon taken out, but he did live to 81. <laughs> and um, he was a character. And, he, of course, he was a character. He was about six foot three, quite a long person, not heavily built. He had very wavy hair and originally had quite an interesting nose, but he had that bopped so that he could do Lance of Arabia. He was a rogue... Women couldn't leave him alone, of course, and he couldn't leave them alone, and naturally. Uh, and uh, he was astounding to watch on the stage. He was just dynamic, a very dynamic actor, I think. I don't think he was a great tragedian, but he was a great comedian in the best sense of theatrical comedian, not show business comedian. He was a superb actor in that respect. So anyway, I was living in the same house as he was living in. I used to help him with his lines when he was sober. And um, I was carrying on at the school. Then for some reason, things started happening. Like um, I was being questioned about how much I knew a certain other person that had turned up at this school who I'd known when I was at my uh, educational school when I was younger at Fairfield who just wanted to get in because I think he fancied the girls and so on. But I had very little to do with him, actually, but I got associated with being in company of dodgy people, including a lot of artists I knew, sleeping on the floors and <laughs> sleeping sometimes in the garden if I was too drunk. <laughs> and uh, no drugs, by the way. And uh, it got about that I was somewhat suspect. I can't know why. I'd never known. And other people said, no, I think you've been treated badly. But for some reason, either an in-between age group, most of the younger fellows were a bit younger than me, uh, and, and, and there were some older people. But um, I wasn't respectable for some reason. And I've, I've never understood it. But the, one of the old actors there, who, who was a very good actor, who came to do training down there, he was very supportive of me. And uh, when the guy running the, the school decided to throw me out, just like that, by the way, I mean, I paid him to be there. I wasn't suitable for the theatre. Oh, God. 
mean, there's far more reprehensible people than the irreversible <laughs> theatre. But that was it. But the Hungarian said to me, lovely chap, George, George Roman, his real name was Kisfalvi, and uh, he was a Jewish Hungarian. He left during the communist thing. That's when I met my wife in his house. And uh, he said, he's going to throw you out. You know that, don't you? I said, yeah, obviously he's going to throw me out. He said, well, forget it. You'll do his play, and that's it. And we'll put the play on at the Bristol University Drama Club place. Well, of course, this guy wasn't too interested in see people seeing me uh, in, in this production. And he said, it's only a first-year student anyway. And he ignored me completely. When he did criticisms of the staff, he didn't even look at me. Of uh, the other members, I'm sorry. And uh, it was a very sinister and very unpleasant incident. I cannot explain it. There are people who are very low, you know, and their behavior cannot be easily explained. I can make up all sorts of suggestions, but I don't think he's worth the time. But I did have to go off on my own. Some people have said I might win the Evening Standard Award in Bristol that year. Um, I also said that I might go in the Bristol Vic which would have been a very good starting place for a young actor to go to a top-class theatre, one of the oldest in Britain, actually. I think he is the oldest in Britain, the best Vic. And um, I was out on my ear and on my travels, trying to get work, scraps here, scraps there, and so on. That's what happened to me. I don't know if you want to ask anything else about Yeah, well, you, I mean, you, then it's all the more remarkable that you um, you notched up, because you notched up a fair few sort of television and, and film credits, so... Yeah, yeah. I never achieved what I think I might have achieved. Yeah. I mean, that's fair enough to say. Sure. I do think I did not... I'm claiming to be the greatest actor of the world, but I do think I had something to offer, and it didn't develop, as it doesn't for many people. And I was coming from zero background, nothing. No sure. money, not the social contacts you need, not the class background you need, by the way. And I'll come to that if you want me to. Oh, absolutely. It's a, it's well, a... I found it in that place. There was some class of you. Mind you, Patrick Stewart wasn't from a posh class. So, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that it was true of all situations, but there was definitely a feeling that some people weren't respected. I think I was seen, because I was somewhat naive in some ways, that I'd been out into the world, so to speak. I'd been shut out of civil life. I'd been in the middle of uh, forests in Africa and in the Suez when the Suez affair took place. I was in Bahrain and when all that was going on. And I was... I rose to a rank of an acting sergeant at my age of 21, and they wanted me to stay in the army and get promoted even more. But I wanted to do theatre, and I felt that I was seen as an oddball. And that's it. In some way, I don't know what I'd done, except for they'd heard stories, perhaps I was drunk somewhere. So what? And so on. I thought that's what actors did anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and I wasn't allowed to go in like anybody else to the Bristol Old Vic School. Sorry, the Bristol Old Vic, down to the Bristol Old Vic, where there was a pub right on the side, it's by the docks. And there was, a, there was another pub down there, which I think was the background for some of the stuff in Treasure Island. Uh, the names have gone out of my head at the moment. And um, 
these Welsh people ran the pub, and my father knew them, and I went. I wanted to live my life. Anyway, it got about that I was breaking the rules. The rules were set up because there was a lot of 16- and 17-year-old girls in the school, and he wanted they come from posh backgrounds, some of them, and he wanted to make sure that he got no criticism if one of them got knocked up. But Peter too prowling around the territory, that was possible. Uh, but not for me. I was a very, very pure person, believe it or not. But I was... If what, if what I was seen as was sufficiently used in theatre, I would have been perhaps another Peter Lorre or some other very sinister person, which I think I could act very well. But in reality, I was a bit of a softy. And uh, that's that unfortunate history. And um, so I went on my way with my wife. Well, actually, I met her over the course of 10 days. I saw her three times. I said, well, we can't be ships passing in the middle of the night. So that was within 10 days of knowing her. I went back up to London, slept on a few floors, came back. She was on her own now, completely detached from all of her family. What I think probably her father was murdered during the Russian regime. Other things happened. So she's so much on her own, very determined, tough little woman. And I said, look, we can't be ships in the night. I said, will you marry me? And uh, I did it kneeling down, believe it or not. Bless and you. And she obviously was slightly uh, adrift. I think she was probably should not have married me, to be honest. Uh, she could have done better. But um, I, 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 was, I borrowed £10 from my Jewish friend, his wife, who and his mother-in-law, who couldn't speak English, and the old Danish gentleman who was kind to my wife in, when she lived in the top flat in in Redland in Bristol during that short period when I was getting to know her. And they were the witnesses. I think I was the only English person, sorry, Welsh, really, uh, <laughs> um, in the registrar's office. £10 I borrowed for it to buy the ring and so when we both went off to London uh, and, and just literally arrived there with no real accommodation or anything except for some of my artist friends who were also pretty penniless who, who found us somewhere to stay te temporarily and so it went on from there struggling along so forth and so on and uh, three kids came along, and you mentioned that I did have a lot of uh, notices in some films. And I was in L Luther on the stage when at one time it's, I was going to understudy Robert Finney, but somebody else took that part. And I, I was a monk in Luther, and I was in it for about uh, a year altogether. And... Um, uh, the Royal Court Theatre. Uh, I was in some of the productions they did down at the Royal Court Theatre, which is the innovative theatre of the time. Um, and uh, you were with film work here and there, more television work, less chance to get into plays. And besides, repertory was going down then, as you know, Toby. Yeah. 
I, uh, and it's expensive. Sometimes I couldn't even afford to travel to do a job. Now, that's terrible. An actor's got to be free, but, you know, you've got a family of three. There are other things to be considered. So this eventually took its toll, as it does for many actors and actresses. In fact, it's far worse, I would have thought, for actresses. I really am very defensive about women, and I... Uh, I just feel that theirs is a tough life. Theirs is a tough life. I mean, I could go and work in a brewery in the East End, hauling big tubs around and stuff and getting in fights. I could go as a night security man because they didn't care if somebody broke in and killed me because I was only there for fire insurance. <laughs> yeah, my wife used to visit me over 48-hour stints at some place on the outskirts of London. But going around uh, Christmas time when I was just trying to get some money together on my own up to 48 hours. And she'd come out with the children in the pram or something. So a lot of actors have a very, very hard life. Extremely hard life. And it is tough. And uh, the going is hard. But what were the what were the bits um, over the period that you were doing it that you enjoyed though? Because there must have been um, some some well, part of it that you loved. Chance of being in a great Irish play of Ocasius. Um the um, oh. is it the Plough and the Stars? Yes, yes. I played two parts in that. Um, I was uh, a British soldier, and I also spoke the words of the Irish. Uh, rebel, um, oh, uh, Jim Connolly. Stage, actually, so it sort of you see his shadow. Yeah. On the stage and um, Wolf Tone was it? Is it was, was it Jim Con- Connolly? <clears throat> it's Connolly, isn't it? Is it Connolly that they hear that they're in the living room, aren't they? And they hear him coming yeah, through. Connolly, was it? Yeah, yeah Jim so Connolly. Mixed up. Yeah. Connolly. I'm not too sure, but anyway, it was one of the great Irish uh, uh, revolutionaries, if you will. But you put it in those terms, yes. And that was, of course, so people won't get confused, set in the earlier era, sometime around the 19, early 19-teens or whatever yeah, it was. Can 19, you remember, it was the 1916 Easter Rising, wasn't it? Yes, that was right, yes. So people get the perspective right, yes. Yeah. That's, that was good, and I was able to do two parts. There was something in them. There was the Cockney singing the song at the end, which was very moving, and I played that, as well as the Irishman. And some people said, where did you get that Irish accent? I said, well, it's probably phony. It's stage Irish. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I can do Irish, West Country, Welsh. I can't do northern parts, northern accents very well. I could tell you a story about that, though. Oh, do. <laughs> well, some weird... You get all weird people around the fringes of show business, you know, and... Uh, they think they'll get into it somehow, like doing adverts for the army. And um, I and some other actors were sent across to the Rhine uh, to play British soldiers on the Rhine. I think now I look back and I think, how shameful that I should have done that to tempt anybody to come into the services. We were on the boat trips down the down the river and the war and everything. And um, we, we, we were playing... Geordies, and I went on some exercises with the real soldiers, you know, and uh, having been a soldier, um, I fitted in a bit easier, but I had to do a, a, um, a 
Geordie accent. <laughs> it was just awful. But when we arrived, they would, uh, when the plane arrived at the camp we were staying at, other actors were coming back on the plane, and I found <laughs> they'd been thrown out for bad behaviour. Huh. It's true. And immediately we were being treated as if we were squaddies uh, by the guy who was producing this effort. It was extremely funny and weird, I can tell you. And other things happened, like the German guys on the boats. I said, I'd like to see a bit of the nightlife down in places like Hanover. And he, he left me in a very dodgy woman, uh, a place where I was supposed to be going off with this woman to have my pleasure. Huh. <laughs> I didn't know I was left there on my own. I, I shan't go into how I got out of this, but uh, there's the sort of things that happen, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, in this business. Uh, actors being sent home for bad behavior and so forth. But I wasn't. I managed to finish it. Uh, another one which was interesting was a film called Rapture, if you put it in French, Rapture, it's Rapture, and um, they had um, American actor, um, he, he was had a long career starting as a toy, toy as a boy actor in The Boy with Green Hair. He was Dean Stockwell. Dean Stockwell. Dean, yes. Guy was the older brother, I think, or bigger brother. Dean Stockwell was in a lot of work. He was generally out of his head while we were doing this film on the Bretney coast. And uh, it, it uh, had that great American actor. He used to do a lot of stuff in the early silence and acted with people like um, um, John Crawford. He was a leading man, a quite a quiet leading man type that fitted in very well with the women. He had attraction, but he wasn't a sort of flashy, hunky type of person. And he was eventually in HUD with uh, Paul Newman. Yes, Mel Melvin Douglas. Melvin Douglas, a gentleman, interesting man, and a pleasant man he was. And um, anyway, that my role in that was to play a, a nasty piece of work, a gendarme who was chasing this little girl around who was aged about 15, and Zanuck had cast her, and I often wonder about that. And um, I, I had to be threatening her. I never understood the plot properly very often. As you know, actors give, get given certain lines if they're doing something in a film without necessarily being in the whole of it. And uh, I did a lot of work in that, like carrying the body of Dean Stockwell up the cliffs in Brittany so it wouldn't look like a dummy. I mean, I was quite strong. I come from a mining background. And uh, I carried him up, and the director, Gilliman, it was, said, I won't forget this, as we went home via Jersey and Guernsey across the seas. And uh, But he did forget it. <laughs> 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 oh, well, there were other things, like the shuttered room with that wonderful... Uh, um, Oliver Reed, who was drunk most of the time, but of an amiable personality. And in that one, I um, I was a, one of the deranged people on this island in New England, um, and I was the most deranged, and uh, were very good at deranged parts. <laughs> I thought, well, a lot of actors always want to be too butch and 
and boisterous. I thought, well, I'm not going to compete with them. I'm going to play the idiot one, then more people will look at me. And uh, so I did play the idiot. And uh, I, I eventually, uh, that went by very well. There were interesting people around on that film, as you, you know, Oliver Reed, no less. And uh, used to say to me, do you think I could get fit and lose a bit of weight, Murray? As I was known, Murray, in my Scottish grandmother's name. Oh, yeah, maybe a pound here or there, Oliver. He <laughs> <laughs> needed a few more pounds, actually. And, and I had a, too many pounds on as well, and I took up a, a, a challenge to run right down to the rocks at Dover and back up the hills again. It was pretty sickening. But uh, we had our fun. I enjoyed that some of that sort of game, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it could be good fun on, on uh, doing doing stuff. Now, there is, a, there is something around, I discovered, because the gentleman who mentioned me to you, yeah. uh, um, uh, Mr. Unwin, yeah. Harvey, um, has produced these uh, Dead Man's Shoes thing with that American actor, You, the name being... Um, do you remember the one I mean? Um, uh, the man in a suitcase. Oh, Rich, a, Richard Bradford. Richard Bradford, yeah. He was on the run, but he, though he was innocent of an um, FBI or guy or something. Yeah, Richard and, Bradford. And I played a sort of very left-wing, scruffy, uh, Marxist type of revolutionary character um, who was called Van Weiss and who, who was mixed up with the baddies... Um, played by such uh, people as uh, James Villiers. Oh, yes. Who's related to the Queen. Yes, indeed. Uh, uh, and and another actor who always played Gestapo types. Um, English, but he was always playing Gestapo types. And I was in those some of those scenes of the plotting and uh, comparing. Uh, they were saying, huh, you know, you live like a... You live like a r rubbish. He, he, he said in, Gattic, in attics and so on. But I am a true revolutionary. I am not in this for the gain like you capitalists. I am here for the people. The people love me. You know, <laughs> rubbish. But that's the kind of part I played in that. Not I don't know if anybody ever wants to see it. Yeah, because the yeah, man in a suitcase is all still about. It was it was Darren Nesbitt, wasn't it, the other actor? Yeah, Darren Nesbitt, yes. He was very good at playing those rather odious characters, I thought. Um, I thought he was a bit odious too, but that's just being a bit nasty. But James Villiers was lovely, lovely. Some of these very posh people who come from certain backgrounds can be extremely pleasant. It's people grasping to get up the fam, get up the chain that are worse. Uh, they can be quite lively people, people like James Villiers, very, very affable. I wish I could remember my lines like you do. <laughs> uh, that, you know? I said, yeah, don't worry. I said, uh, I've always been professional, but it's no guarantee of anything. Uh, quite right. And uh, that was uh, it's about, as I said, the episode was called Dead Man's Shoes. Yeah. I don't really know what was going on in that most of the time anyway, myself. Um, I acted with uh, a very, very good actor and comedian in his earlier days um, in one uh, episode, um, Marx. What was his name now? Alfred. Uh, Alfred, Alfred Marx. Marx, yeah. Alfred, yeah. He was very Jewish. I love Jewish characters. 
You know, he, he, he had a kind of wit. But if he thought he'd used it badly, like he'd apologise straight away because he had, he had that kind of wit, you know, like Mel Brooks. I said, I went up to speak to him when I first met him and I was playing a part of a social worker, which I became for a while, for some years. And he was playing an, an ex-soldier who lived rather peculiarly. He had his garden made out into a, a parade square and he used to blow the uh, revali every morning on his trumpet. So people thought he was slightly bent, weird, you know? And I, he was playing that character. And uh, I went up to say hello to him and said, has anybody given you permission to speak to me? And I looked a bit shocked for a minute. Then, he's, then he did a big grin, you know? Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, it's going to get you off balance. So that was an interesting part in that. And I was playing a social worker. And I always had something inside me that would, was going to lead me to being a social worker. I realized that from a very early stage in my life, that that would come out, and I did. And I worked for, eventually, when I left the profession, I uh, uh, worked with children's problems with children, young offenders, teenagers, the old, the sick, the mentally ill, valuable work. I don't feel my life's a total waste of time with that sort of work I did. No, the, the satisfaction from... Because my mum was a health visitor, funnily enough. But the, yes. The, the satisfaction from, from helping people must be extraordinary, the amount of lives that you've touched. But it is, actually. There's much I could talk about, but I don't think listeners would want me to waffle on about all of that, you know? But I did have very close relationships with people who died. I mean, I'll tell you a story... Now, a lot of people will think I'm really some weirdo. Well, I am. (laughs) I was doing my job up in Brown Hills in Walsall area, covering different sorts of cases. That didn't happen everywhere, but it did there. I mean, I might be working with young offenders, young people in trouble, still related to their families. I still speak to them, and they speak to me. And... On the other hand, there was a lady came in my office with a young member of her family to say that Stan, her husband, had had this operation. We didn't know what we were going to do. We need a lot of help to keep him in the house and not have him shoved off in some care home. He'd lost a leg. He'd lost the use of an arm. He couldn't speak clearly. He'd had a stroke. He's very ill, but he was in a very, very isolated position. But he was a lovely human being. He was a wonderful person. She was, in the brief three weeks I knew her, she died. He was on his tot. And I, he had wonderful family, well, a, a sister-in-law of his, who was a lovely woman, and she's still alive, and I speak to her over the phone. And I'm going back a lot of years now. And she used to come into his house every day and other neighbours would help and he had some visits from the care services, probably more than they get in now. And um, he he would sit there on his own with big mugs of tea all around him. And uh, I don't know how he managed that. And she used to toilet him and everything. And his sister-in-law. And I would I got all the help I could for him so he wouldn't have to go into care. We had lifts put in and everything. And uh, I used to get all my own angst out after a week dealing with um, uh, 
big family of children that have been dispersed with foster parents all around the Warsaw, quite stupidly by the service, by the way. They blamed the mother of these children for the behaviour of her, her husband or partner, but for some strange reason she was blamed for what he did. He disappeared from the scene. She had to visit her children, and I had to take her around to visit all the children uh, at their homes or at a, at a place, uh, a centre somewhere in Warsaw, every so often. It wasn't a very good idea. I eventually got them all together again. But in the meantime, with Stanley, I used to go up to his house and joke about with him. And I said, oh, God, I can't cope with this anymore. And he used to say to me, you, you, you want to be careful. You'll get like me. We <laughs> <laughs> used to laugh together. <laughs> and then I said, I want you to do something about your speech problem. I said, Suddenly Last Summer was a film starring Audrey Hepburn, Elizabeth Taylor, and Montgomery Clift, if you remember that? Yeah, yeah. By Tennessee Williams. And there's a scene where she comes down in her palatial house in a lift, and uh, they've, Montgomery Clift uh, has come to see her. He's a psychiatrist, which is odd because he was a, an actor who needed a lot of psychiatric help himself, um, unfortunately. And um, she'd come down, and the, the the doors would open on the lift and she'd say, there she was in her type of Edwardian hat and feathers and everything, and she'd say, um, I'm assuming you've come to see my son Sebastian. Sebastian, her son, had been married to this Elizabeth Taylor, but he'd been torn to pieces on a beach. Tennessee Williams did tend to do things a little bit quite dramatic at yeah. times. He was that kind of writer. And uh, so, I said to, so I said to Stanley, look, we'll put you in a lift. He had a wheelchair because I got him one set up. You go up in the lift and I'll be the director. And when you come down, you have to say, I'll say, right, action. And he'd come down and he'd go, and he'd fall about laughing. And we kept doing this and saying, cut, cut, cut. Now, people will say, you were totally mad, that poor man. We had a hell of a laugh together over that. Oh. We created our own little drama and fell about laughing. And that was really something. Later, when he died, the whole of his family over the Midlands asked me to come and speak on his behalf. So that was the greatest satisfaction I could have, that nothing in the theatre ever gave me that satisfaction. Yeah. That closeness to real people and to feel valued. Never, never anything like that in my experience in any shape or form in the business. And there's a lot of stuff I did as well as that. I, Edmund Moore, the writer, was a rough and ready character, took to me because I was pretty rough and ready in a certain degree, not heavy, but pretty rough. And um, I was in a number of productions that he was in, all, uh, and including 
a wonderful play, I thought, at the time, where I played the youngest son of a Nottingham trade unionist who tended to be very garrulous and bossy, but I was the son that he would turn to to tell all his stories to. He needed me. He was dependent upon me. And um, that was pretty good, that film, that, that television, and I got good notices for that too. And um, it was set in a Nottingham area, and I had that type of accent, and so did most of the actors. And um, the funny thing is that my own mother said to me, your father was like that with you, wasn't he? You were, you were his outlet, so he could tell you all his tragedy and upsets and working in the mines and such like and his own family problems and so on. So that was an interesting way in which life and art came together again. Yeah. Yes. Um, as I said, I was the youngest brother, and uh, I found it very... Some things that happened, there are like moments. So James Stewart, great actor, said when he was talking to Parkinson, there are moments in... There are moments... And you get that in in that particular production. Like they sh showed me walking with Mary Miller, who was a lovely actress, Mary, yeah. as my girlfriend, across the street in the terraced houses of Nottingham. And there were some um, brewery horses chained up. And as I walked across the street, I'm a bit nervous about uh, horses and whatnot, but I instinctively moved my hand out and rub them on the nozzle uh, on their um, faces as we passed by. That just came out inventively, because there was something about the atmosphere, and that that can lead to good filmmaking absolutely. if people understand that sort of thing, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, but not a lot of people do. They're very arch. There was a shuttered room. Going back to the shuttered room, there was a guy called David Green. Yeah. Now, he was a bit of a character, and he was artistic himself, and uh, he liked painting, which I do. In one of the scenes in the shuttered room, where all these drunken mob of idiots come along, and they try to beat up King Gyan, the actor was, character was in it, with his, uh, and uh, not effectively, because he's a tough American, sorts us out. But... Um, I I tipped down the bonnet of the car and I thought, again, I'll be different than the other ones shouting, shouting too much. I'm an idiot character anyway. And I fell down in the front of this car and just slowly did a slow take like a Lyle and Hardy or something and clapped on the floor. David Green said, wonderful, wonderful. He said, you have such an instinct for the camera. I didn't get any more work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, an, an, actor's, an actor's life. Actor's life, yes. Now, I could go on ad for Nighton. Well, I've taken up so much of your time, I'm very so grateful. I've taken up your time. Not at all. Shut up once we start, no, you know. It's Welsh and an actor. What do you expect? <laughs> you know. But I hope what I've said is useful. No, I've that's... probably left out a lot of things I should have mentioned. Just a couple of... Could, would you, um, could you nominate a charity for the listeners? Um, and, and then uh, they, can, they can donate to a charity that is close to your heart. Well, God, it's difficult, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I mean, there's so much despair in the world, and I'm going to say that let's start 
though I'm not in any way dismissing children in Syria and anything like that, let's just start with the poverty, because I think it needs to be pointed out much more than it is even, the sheer poverty. And I don't care. I have big arguments in the street about this. I won't talk to certain people anymore. I refuse to talk to people who talk about layabout families or they're too big a family or they're hiding behind the curtains while other people go to work. I won't have it. I will not have that nonsense and this ignorance. So I want something that supports the poor in this country. Now, I can't think of a title in my head. Perhaps you can help me, Toby. Would it save the children? Save the children or children in need, yeah. I mean, either of those, I think. That's well, it's fine. been a great pleasure, Toby, because what you've done is given me a chance, not really all that stuff I told you about the being in the theatre and whatnot. As I said, I've probably forgotten half of it anyway, and I didn't, a lot of things more interesting I could have told you, more interesting me, but the circumstances in which I fled instead of peace from Macbeth, as I told you, mentioned to you, I think, before. Yeah. Uh, uh, from, from tomorrow and tomorrow, tomorrow keeps in this petty pace from day to day, and all that and beating people like, um, 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 kind arts and coronets. Uh, oh, Dennis Price. Danny, excellent Dennis Price, whose career faded away. And he wound up drunken and on his own, and he's saying, what price, what glory price. This is tragic, because he was talented, and unfortunately he went down the hill. But he was again probably born a general, his father was a general, posh and all the rest of it. He had wonderful style. And he came up to me as the scruffy actor that I was, playing a scruffy actor, doing an audition in the Richmond Theatre, which was filmed in the theatre. And he said to me, when I did that piece, he said, Oh, I wish I could do that. And I looked up at him and I said, Dennis, you don't need to do stuff like this with your style. Because, you know, I don't think Shakespeare's the be-all and all of everything, you know. There is a limit. I mean, there are other great writers. Yes. Know? Oh, absolutely. Yes, and so on. But um, it's given me the chance, and I'm so glad that you came to me about this, because I could at least at the very end say about my real concern in life, as I'm 78 now, is how backward we've gone how terribly, terribly backward that we have so much poverty in our own society and the very people who are in this dire poverty are being treated as layabouts. And I find that sickening and unforgivable. And any government that supports that is unforgivable. So thank you very much. Well, no, thank you, John. That's great. You can look me up or I'll come to see you which way you want it, all right? Bless you. Oh, well, thanks so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. I want pleasure. you to have great success. I like your attitude to life. I do hope that you do achieve what you're trying to do. I admire it. Oh, I admire people that do strive to do things and are flexible at it. I was never flexible. So I was part of my own problem. God bless you. Oh, well, bless you, John. I'm very flattered, and thanks so much. It's been a real honour. Take care. Bye. Bye. My thanks to John, or as we know him in the world of Doctor Who, Murray Evans, who uh, was the lorry driver in episode one of The Invasion. 
uh, but uh, even the smallest uh, contribution to Doctor Who, as I'm sure you all uh, agree, having listened to that, can provoke uh, the most interesting conversations. Um, thanks, John. Did you notice I didn't get to ask him uh, what his message was for the Doctor Who fans? Because so I, I sort of had to leave that ending in, which is unusual because you've been very nice to me. I wasn't I wasn't putting that out there to go, oh look at me. I was putting that out there because otherwise it would have just abruptly stopped. Um, because I normally ask that terrible question. Um, I suspect it was probably keep watching or something. Um, um, so, um, so yes, an unusual ending, but uh, one. Uh, contrived by circumstance. Uh, his charities were um, Children in Need or Save the Children, which should be easy enough for you to find. Or perhaps there's uh, something local to you that helps children in poverty. That seemed to me to be John's big driver was to, to help children uh, who are in poverty. So uh, I'll sort of leave that one to you, I think. But uh, if you're stuck, Children in Need or Save the Children. Uh, there's another one of these next time. My thanks to Harvey Unwin. Uh, one of those many, a Facebook friend of mine whom I have never met, who said, I know a guy who's in Doctor Who, uh, would you be interested? And uh, set up the conversation. Uh, so thanks, Harvey. Uh, I think it's a really interesting one. Um, and thanks to John, who's a lovely fellow. OK, um, tune in next time. Thanks a lot. Bye. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Survivors, Series 8. Hope is a difficult thing to find nowadays. My hope is living off rumours. I'm not sure I could take another letdown, Jenny. They look like kids. This group is organised. I'm looking for my son, Peter Grant. Outlaws! Open fire! We are not abandoning this train. I'll be damned if I'm going to let a bunch of thugs just take it over. We're on the brink of civil war. Outlaws! Get ready to board that train! We're in a fight here. You need to start shooting. Big finish. We love stories. All the years I've been searching, holding on to the hope that he's alive. Well, he is, Jenny. And I'm so close 